Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on The Agenda, going to be having a chat about Marie Sklodowska Curie, a, a very famous scientist indeed. I'm almost certain you would have heard of her. Uh, we love a bit of history of science here on Half-Assed History, of course. We love a bit of history of science. And uh, this woman is obviously a towering figure in the age of modern science. I tell you what, she's one of only four people ever to have won two Nobel Prizes. And she's one of two to have won them in two different fields. And on top of this, she was the first woman ever to win one at all, let alone bloody two. I mean, she's the first person ever to win two, but first woman, woman to win one. Curie won her awards um, for her trailblazing research on radioactivity, a term that she coined uh, along with her husband and research partner, Pierre. And her work changed the course of scientific progress forever, completely changed her understanding of the world. Um, and it's made all the more remarkable, of course, uh, when put in its proper historical context, when you realise, of course, that in Curie's time, Women were often thought as being completely incapable scientists. They were characterised as, you know, too emotional, too irrational to be properly objective about things. And obviously this is total nonsense, of course, but a century or so ago, you know, this type of thinking was widespread and it makes Curie's story all the more compelling. Her work was of such profound importance that it fought through all of the fiercely entrenched sexism that was so rife at the time. And, you know, quite aside from that, on top of all of that, you know, if you look at her professional life, you know, that's there's so much to unpack there. But also, just more personally, she's a fascinating figure. She was shy, retiring, uncorrupted by fame and fortune, not interested in money, wholly devoted to her work. She, um, alongside, you know, people like her husband Pierre, got a, bit, got, a, got a bit of help from him, along with other associates she had, such as uh, Henri Becquerel, uh, with whom uh, she and her husband shared a Nobel Prize. She fundamentally changed our understanding of physics and of the world in which we live. And, and in later life, she would put her findings to practical purposes and, uh, and, and pivot into other areas of science as well. For example, when she harnessed X-ray technology with the outbreak of the First World War to help soldiers that were fighting there. And then on top of all of this, she was a resolute Polish patriot, despite being a naturalised French citizen who spent much of her life in Paris. So, so much to get across. A fascinating figure um, and, and someone who, you know, there's, there's really, again, a lot to cover. So... Uh, Let's get, let's get to it. Here we go. Let's get underway with the story of Marie Curie, the great scientist. Let's get to it. Now, we're going all the way back. We're going all the way back here, back to 1867, when uh, Maria Salomea Sklodowska was born on the 7th of November in, in Warsaw in Congress, Poland. Now, of course, her birth name, Maria Salomea Sklodowska, known to history as Marie Curie, as she did end up moving to France and, and uh, you know, became known as Marie rather than Maria and Marie Curie once she got married, of course. So I'm going to stick to calling her Marie Curie throughout the podcast, although, you know, before she got married, obviously she was known as Maria Sludowska. Anyway, she was born in Congress Poland. Congress Poland was a uh, was the name given to a semi-autonomous state within the Russian Empire. Now, during much of Curie's life, what we think of as today's Poland was actually divided between Russia, Germany and Austria. Um, but uh, this didn't stop many Polish people, uh, Curie's family in particular, from, from still maintaining a very strong Polish identity. She was the youngest of five children to her mum, Bronislava, and her dad, Vladislav, Vladislav Sklodowski. And uh, she had a pretty modest upbringing, to be honest. Both her parents were teachers. They'd lost their fortunes thanks to their involvement in uh, in Polish independence movements. And doubtlessly, obviously, they instilled a, a very strong sense of pride in their native Poland and their children, particularly in Marie. Um, and sadly, 
sadly, uh, her mum died when she was just 10 years old. Poor little uh, little Marie Curie's little girl. She lost her mum just at the age of 10. But her dad ensured that all of his children were still very well educated, uh, bringing home laboratory equipment when lab work in schools was banned by the Russians. And Curie demonstrated her very sharp mind at a young age. She excelled at her studies. And as she got older, she, older, she attended the secretive Flying University, which was a clandestine underground Polish education institution that taught subjects that were forbidden by the Russian Empire, not only the sciences, but also Polish history and culture. The reason it was called the Flying University or the Floating University is because it moved around all the time to evade uh, the attention of the authorities. And so she was able to receive, uh, you know, the education that her dad is, again, a proud a proud citizen of Poland uh, would have hoped uh, her to be. And, and again, this, this, this pride in her native land uh, emerges throughout her story, as, as we'll discover. Unfortunately, however, her dad couldn't afford to continue her education and send her to a formally recognised university. And so instead, she had to work as a governess. And Curie did this until the age of 24, at which point she had finally saved up enough money to leave Poland and travel to France, where she enrolled at the University of Paris, known as the Sorbonne. Uh, there at the Sorbonne, she studied diligently and with great self-sacrifice. I tell you what, she was so bloody poor as a student. She had to, she had to clean laboratory glassware for an absolute pittance just to, uh, just to feed herself. And even then, she had to starve herself regularly so as to not actually run out of money. But all her hard work paid off. She pushed through all this adversity, however. And uh, in 1893, she, she was duly awarded a physics degree. And then the, one year later, or, or uh, in the next year at least, in 1894, she was awarded a degree in mathematics. So she got there. She snagged the qualifications she'd worked so hard for. By the age of 27, she's off down the track. And it was, 18, it was in 1894, same year she got this maths degree, um, that another very significant event took place for Curie, or, or I suppose, you know, for Sklodowska, as she was still known at this point. It was in 1894 that she met a bloke named Pierre Curie. Now, Pierre was a physicist. He was 35 years old. He mainly studied magnetism and, and crystals. Uh, he and his brother actually are credited with the discovery of piezoelectricity, which is used for all sorts of things, such as uh, powering quartz watches. You can go and listen to the History of Clocks, episodes uh, 101 and 102, get across them. Anyway, Pierre, Pierre and Marie, uh, they're quite taken with one another. Pierre fell for Marie's towering intelligence and her devotion to her scientific work. And, and he proposed to her, and they got married the next year in 1895, and they remain, even today, one of the greatest power couples in the history of science. Neither of them were interested in a lavish or a comfortable life. No, they lived in humble and in very unostentatious circumstances on Pierre's modest income as a, uh, as a scientist. Marie worked in Pierre's lab as she, uh, as she prepared a doctoral thesis, uh, and this thesis was actually pushed back by, uh, by her pregnancy. She, uh, Curie became pregnant and gave birth in 1897 to a daughter, Irene. But even this, uh, even this new arrival, a new child here, couldn't keep Curie away from her work for long. Her father-in-law stepped in to look after little Irene as Curie once again threw herself into her work. And this was a move that raised a lot of eyebrows, even amongst some of her closer colleagues who were obviously expecting her to stay at home with her kid. Many people thought that she should abandon her work altogether in order to stay home and raise her new child. But as you might have already guessed, Curie told him to get stuffed, she told him to tell his story walking, and she got straight back into the lab because she wasn't taking guff from anyone, mate. Even with all the judgment, the derision, and the scorn and everything else that she suffered from colleagues for her choice to continue her career, Curie pushed on with her pioneering work. She was working alongside her husband, Pierre, and uh, and this other, this other fellow that I mentioned earlier, the bloke whose name was Henri Becquerel. Now, Becquerel, he was investigating uh, a very curious phenomenon. He'd been working with x-rays and he was working with u- uranium salts, right? And he noted 
that uranium, right, these were uranium salts, they had these high energy emissions coming off of them. And, and, and science at the time found this inexplicable. Marie Curie, she got a bunch of uranium and she observed, she tested and researched this substance and the high energy emissions that were coming off of it. And she, she was attempting to discover how the uranium could emit energy while not undergoing any, any sort of visible or, or, or noticeable change. Usually for any kind of energy to be emitted off of a substance like this, you know, th there would be some kind of observable change that would take place. For example, of often it's heat or light. And, you know, when something is emitting heat on light, you can tell why. For, for example, it might be on fire or something. I don't know. But these lumps of uranium, they just seem to stay the same. No matter what, they were still pumping out all this energy, but they just sat there. They weren't moving, weren't changing, they weren't doing anything. So now obviously today, you know, even a basic amount of scientific knowledge means that you probably know what was going on. there. Even if you can't explain the exact process underlying it, you probably know lumps of uranium giving off energy. You probably know what this means. But back in, in you know, back at the turn of the 20th century, back in the 1890s, people had no idea. Absolute total mystery it was. And it defied the laws of, of, of you know, of thermodynamics, the conservation of energy. But people were at a loss to explain what was going on. But... Marie Curie, she wasn't going to take no for an answer, mate. She, it was none other than Marie Curie herself that suggested a bold hypothesis about these uranium emissions. As she was testing, as she was doing her researches, she decided she had a bit of an idea. She can have a bit of a guess here at what was going on. And so she posited that there was something fundamentally different about uranium atoms that made them emit this, you know, this energy here. This was something, right, this was something that was so groundbreaking, right, this hypothesis that ultimately was proved to be correct, I might add, right, this hypothesis was so far-fetched by the scientific knowledge at the time, because let me tell you something, right, the understanding of what an atom was around the turn of the 20th century was so finalized, people thought. It was so definitive. I mean, you might know the word atom comes from the Greek word atomos, meaning indivisible. Curie was suggesting something that was so totally radical, revolutionary here, in that atoms were not indivisible, that they were not stable, that they weren't completely figured out. In other words, she was proposing that humanity's understanding of atoms and their properties wasn't just incorrect, but needed a complete upheaval and revision. And she was determined to take part in this upheaval, in this revision. She adapted some of the equipment that uh, that Pierre and his brother had used in investigating piezoelectricity. And, she, and using this equipment, she took amazingly precise measurements of these uranium emissions. And she did the same with another, another substance called thorium. She had a similar set of properties to uranium in this regard in terms of giving off energy. And as her work continued, she realized something very interesting. She, was, she, she became a little confused because both uranium and thorium they emitted far more energy than they should. She guessed that there must be something, there must be another substance mixed in with the samples that she was using, right? There must be another substance mixed in uh, at work in her samples, right, that was, uh, that was influencing the results of her, of her research in this way. And with that in mind, with this, with this hypothesis that she had about the atoms that she was studying and about with this, this new substance that she, that she thought was, uh, was at work behind the scenes here, she continued to work away and solve this mystery. And it wasn't long before she had a huge breakthrough. In 1898, Curie discovered a new substance 
altogether. One that was not known to modern science. Her hunch about something else being at work in these samples of uranium, in these samples of thorium that she had, was 100% correct. There was a new substance in there that was completely unknown to science at the time. This one blasted out high energy emissions like no other. Like uranium, thorium, thorium, Absolutely left in the dust when it came to this new uh, this new substance that she discovered in terms of how much energy it was giving out, and she named this new substance she named it polonium after her native Poland. Now I mentioned before that she she bore a, a deep and abiding love for her homeland, and even after getting married, she was often known as Marie Sklodowska Curie, keeping her Polish name alongside her new French one. And we'll talk more about her relationship with Poland in a little bit. But in the meantime, just remember how much her origins meant to her. So much so that when she discovered this new element, as of course we know it to be today, she's discovered this new substance. She called it polonium. Anyway, a few other a few months after uh, discovering polonium as one of the sources of these emissions, she discovered a another substance that did basically the same thing, giving off a huge amount of energy, uh, called radium. She named it radium. And these new, these two newly discovered elements, they shared the same property as uranium and thorium, although again, much more strongly. They were giving off this energy in much, much greater amounts. And of course, this property that, you know, this, this high energy emission property, as you've no doubt guessed, is of course radioactivity discovered by Becquerel with his uranium salts and named by Marie and Pierre Curie, radioactivity and our understanding of it has changed the world forever. And it all began with this trio, Marie Curie, Pierre Curie and Henri Becquerel. That's where this whole thing started as Marie's determined investigation lifted the veil on another hidden mystery of the universe. But of course, it's still early days, still early days back in the late 1890s. We still, of course, don't have a very clear picture of, uh, of this sort of stuff. It's just the beginning of this area of scientific inquiry. And the Curies, Mary Curie and, and her husband, husband Pierre, are resolved to continue investigating her new discoveries. Pierre had actually, at this point, stopped his own research with crystals and whatnot completely. He'd abandoned it and instead had thrown himself behind Marie and her work. She was hell-bent on properly isolating the elements that she discovered here. She wanted to obtain pure polonium, pure radium, so as to study them further. But here's the problem. Obtaining pure polonium, obtaining pure radium, not a very easy thing to do, not by any means. Marie and Pierre, they published paper after paper after paper about their findings uh, as they continued to do their research. But they wanted indisputable evidence of their findings to, to, uh, to back up what they were saying. They wanted cold, hard facts. And so they worked tirelessly to isolate polonium and radium and find proof positive of the stuff that they were saying. So, you know, obviously they, they wanted these pure substances so they could study them properly. And gaining access to these pure substances, as I say, not an easy thing to do. And it took them literal years. It involved the chemical separation of the components of a substance called pitchblende or, or uraninite, as it's often known. Now, you know, this doesn't sound unusual in the field of chemistry. A lot of chemistry, from what I understand, is just turning one thing into another thing with occasionally some very exciting, you know, bangs and and and, and smells and, and, and flashing lights. But in this situation, right, gaining even the even the smallest amount of radium from pitch blend was such an ordeal. One thousand kilograms of pitch blend, a ton of uraninite, right, yields 0.1 grams of pure radium. It took Four years 
for the Curies to obtain a single thimble's worth of the stuff. And even then, it wasn't properly pure. As for polonium, right, Curie actually was never able to isolate it altogether. It's too unstable an element. An, an element. It, it eluded her attempts altogether, right? But after years and years and tons and tons of pitch blend, a thimble's worth of pure, well, no, of at least somewhat more pure radium was, was obtained by the Curies here in the most gruelling and unforgiving circumstances too. The nature of their work was horrible. They worked in a small shed with terrible ventilation, busted up windows, they got chemical burns, and they're often getting very, very sick, generally having a terrible time falling ill with all sorts of stuff here. But despite all this, Curie was able to take exceedingly precise, precise measurements of, of the radium that she, uh, that she isolated. And this is just incredible, given the, the state of her research facilities, given how you know, terrible the, the, uh, the, the circumstances were for her. And in 1903, while she was working on this, Marie Curie was, she was awarded a doctorate in physics after writing a thesis on radiation. And the academics, the professors who reviewed it, they were astounded. They recognised it for what it was. It was an earth-shatteringly important scientific breakthrough here. This was, this was a, a discovery of such monumental importance. They knew it was going to go down as a, as a huge thing in the history of science. And uh, her work was, in fact, so momentous that there was immediate talk after she published this thesis, immediate talk of a Nobel Prize for it. And here... It was uh, during, you know, as, as this, this talk of the Nobel Prize uh, began to, to get kicked up, it was here that Curie started to face some very familiar challenges. Because as the rumblings of a Nobel Prize began to swirl around Curie and, and, her, and her husband and, and Henri Becquerel for their work on radioactivity, men in the French Academy of Science were working very hard to rob Curie of the credit that she deserved. They attempted to sway the Nobel Committee, right, to just make the award out to Pierre and to Becquerel and leave Marie out of it altogether. Barefaced, institutionalised sexism wrought by men who refused to accept that a woman could have made such a stunningly advanced scientific breakthrough. They weren't about to accept a woman as an equal here. This insidious effort to steal Curie's thunder, however, I'm happy to say, it came to naught because Pierre himself insisted that Marie was principally responsible for the discoveries that the trio had made as she had pioneered the research. She had been the one who had hypothesized about radioactivity and she, she had been the one who had put in the hard yakker and got the results there. So as a result, at the end of 1903, Marie Curie became the first woman ever awarded the Nobel Prize, sharing the prize for physics with her husband Pierre and her colleague Henri Becquerel. Now, I, I, I want to point out that the joint prize wasn't a slight. It wasn't saying, you know, this, was, this wasn't necessarily a studied insult of, uh, of Marie Curie by saying, oh, you know, she has to share it with men. Joint Nobel Prizes aren't, they're not super uncommon. The first ever Nobel Peace Prize was shared, for example, and, it, and even last year, four of 2026 uh, Nobel Prizes were also shared. So it is, you know, it, it certainly does happen. However, Curie did suffer an outrageous insult at the ceremony itself, despite the fact that, you know, the committee signed off on awarding her the, the award along with these other two blokes, the president of the Swedish Academy uh, did make the, perhaps what were the most begrudging remarks as the, uh, you know, as a recipient received this award by making a reference to the Bible, a biblical reference as he awarded the prize saying, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helpmeet for him. 
So in the eyes of many, Marie Curie was, you know, reduced, demoted to a helper, a mere helper for her husband, Pierre Curie, despite the fact that Pierre had gone out of his way to explain that Marie had been the driving force behind much of the research, much of the discovery, and she was the one who had... uh, who had really been at the forefront of these discoveries? I mean, they, you know, they couldn't let her just have it, could they? Despite everything that Pierre's saying, whatever else, they couldn't just they couldn't just let her have it, mate. Had to had to get in there with a nasty comment like that and reduce her reduce her her position, her status within this entire situation. Bloody unbelievable. Unfortunately, Marie didn't get much of the recognition she, she deserved, even after being the recipient of a Nobel Prize. People did assume that she was a mere helper for Pierre, and and this was reflected in what what happened after they got back to Paris, because at the University of Paris. It was Pierre who was who was promoted. He's the one. He's he's the one out there saying no, no, no. It was, it was Marie who done what had done most of the work here. But he was the one who received the promotion. He received a professorship, and Marie got nothing much. I'm sorry to say, at least not from the Sorbonne. Uh, Pierre did obviously, you know, do his best to right the wrong. He immediately put her in charge of his laboratory and its staff, meaning for the, for the first time ever in her career, she actually got paid for her scientific work. If you don't count the, you know cleaning the glassware when she was a student, which, you know, doesn't rate enormously highly amongst her scientific endeavours and achievements there. It's it's good that she's finally in the la- in charge of a lab, you know, putting away some money for the work that she was doing. That's, uh, you know, it's, be- it's better stuff for her there, but still not an ideal situation. Anyway, in 1904, Marie gave birth to her second daughter, Eve. But again, a new child did not keep her away from her work by any means. This time, Curie hired governesses to take care of her two children, Polish governesses to be specific, uh, to ensure that they were raised to know their heritage. I've talked about Curie's abiding love of her native land, and uh, she made sure to only speak Polish to her young girls as they grew up to make sure they'd be fluent. And uh, she went on regular trips with them back to Poland, or indeed sent them back to Poland to spend time with her family there. She was determined to make sure that these two girls, they had, you know, she was determined to have them retain a, a level of their Polish identity. And, and, and the two, you know, two young daughters, they grew up with no doubt about their, uh, their heritage, despite the fact that they, they uh, grew up in France. You know, they did manage to maintain a, a level of, of Polishness throughout their, uh, throughout their entire lives, in fact. However... A year and a half after the birth of, uh, of their second daughter, Eve, tragedy struck the Curie family. Because on the 19th of April in 1906, Pierre, who was known to be very easily preoccupied, he stepped out into a, into a busy Paris street and he was run over by a horse-drawn cart and he died instantly. It's thought that he was distracted. He wasn't paying attention to his surroundings. You know, he's thought about his his work as he was just wandering about. And uh, this was this was typical of poor Pierre. Obviously, paid a very heavy price for it, paying the ultimate price, really losing his life. And Curie was gutted. She was gutted by her husband's death. Now, of course, because they were so much more than husband and wife. They were close professional colleagues as well, who were unlocking the the great mysteries of the natural world. And it was a grievous blow for her. It was a terrible thing that she suffered. However, I'm pleased to say that the University of Paris, actually in this situation, they stepped up. They stepped up in supporting her and her work. They offered her the position of her late husband. When she accepted, she became the first female professor at the University of Paris in history, and her work continued. Rather than be pushed off to the side and accept a widow's pension, no, no, she was back in the laboratory, and the university backed her 
offered her a professorship, and now she's in charge. And despite the loss of her husband, her fortunes continued to prosper, I'm happy to say. She created a laboratory given over specifically to the study of radioactivity. Of course, she's a pioneer in the field. Who better to be at the forefront of this research? She managed to properly isolate pure radium in 1910, which, of course, greatly advanced the study of the substance and, and, and its properties. And she named the standard unit that is used to measure radioactive decay the Curie, in honour of her husband, of course, though we do these days call it the Becquerel, which is fair enough because, you know, he was the one who discovered radioactivity in the first place. It was, uh, it was the Curies who, who named it, but it was Becquerel who discovered it. Still, in some places, the, the Curie is still used to, to, measure, uh, to measure radioactivity. And all throughout this period, all throughout this period after the death of her husband, she kept a diary. She kept a journal that was actually addressed to Pierre, where she recounted the research and the investigation that she was undertaking. So, Internally, obviously, you know, she was she was going through some very private mourning, but externally, she was all business. She very rarely let anyone glimpse her true feelings of mourning or loss. She was a she was a, a rigid professional and a rigorous scientist who, who, as as you won't be surprised to learn, didn't let anything get in the way of her research. However, not everything went Curie's way after her husband's death. I'm sorry to say, even with the professorship, with the laboratory, and everything else that's going on, because even. Even with all of the incredible discoveries she'd made, the recognition, the Nobel Prize, all the rest of it, the laboratory and everything, even with all of that under her belt, she still wasn't being taken seriously and she was still facing heavily institutionalized sexism at every turn when she was outside the lab. For example, she was denied membership of the French Academy of Sciences. A vote was held on her joining the Academy and she lost this vote amongst the members by either two or just one vote. Many men, they, they clung to outdated sexist ideas about what, woman, about what women could and couldn't do. Some explicitly claim, went on record in saying that women should not be allowed to join the Institute. And it got worse for poor old Curie from there as well when it was discovered that she was having an affair with one of Pierre's former students, a bloke whose name was Paul Langevin. Uh, he was married to another woman. And look, you know, in the grand scheme of things, this is not much of a scandal. You know, a widow having an affair like this is hardly world-ending news. But those who wish to see Curie's you know, career fail spectacularly, they used it as a pretext to discredit her. They cast her as a, uh, as a homewrecker, as someone who couldn't be trusted, as someone, again, whose emotions would, would, would get the better of her in the cold, hard world of, world of science. And I mean, Curie stood up for herself. She didn't take this. Uh, she didn't take this sort of stuff lying down. Her response was characteristic of her businesslike and, and detached professionalism. When she was asked about the affair, she very curtly responded by saying, "I believe there is no connection between my scientific work and the facts of private life." So she really wasn't taking any guff from anyone, as I've said. And look, this didn't end her career. Happily, this uh, you know the, the 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 scandal that was sort of beaten up and taken out of proportion here as it attempt as people attempted to discredit her, it didn't catch on. And uh, on the contrary, really, in 1911, Marie Curie became the first person ever to receive a second Nobel Prize. And even today, she's one of just four people ever with that very distinctive honour. She received the Nobel Prize in 1911 for chemistry, this time for her discover, uh, discovery of polonium and radium. And this time, it wasn't a shared prize. Curie made it very clear that she was the one who had made these discoveries independent of her husband or other colleagues, and she was honoured singularly as such. 
The second Nobel Prize did a lot to quash and silence her critics and help to shatter the perception of her as this biblical helpmeet that she'd been made out to be after winning the first one. And it also overshadowed the nonsense about the affair, I'm happy to say. Curie's reputation as a scientist was strongly bolstered by her, with her groundbreaking second award and this, uh, this characterization her of a, as, a, as a homewrecker, it, 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 uh, it melted away in, in, in broad terms, of course, as though there are always people out there trying to discredit her, trying to take it away from her. But uh, broadly speaking, the, uh, you know, her, her achievements in the laboratory outweighed uh, her, her indiscretions outside of it. And as a result, she did manage to, uh, you know, to have a reputation, as I say, bolstered strength and the esteem in which she was held began to grow. However, more bad news was on the horizon. I mentioned before how both Marie and Pierre often fell sick during their researches. And in 1911, Curie got particularly ill. She had to have surgery to remove lesions from her kidneys and from her uterus and she was forced away from her work for quite some time in order to make a full recovery. Now, obviously, this couldn't have been an easy thing for, for her to do, given we know how attached she was to her scientific research. But uh, it, was, it was quite some time that she was away from the lab, and uh, it, it took all the way through until 1913 for her to get, back, uh, to, to get back at it. But in 1913, I'll tell you what, she didn't waste any time. She was back at it. She established two new institutes, one in Paris, the other in Warsaw. She spent some time with Albert Einstein. She sought to continue all of her research. But history had other ideas, of course, because you know what's coming. You know what's looming large on the horizon. A whole new chapter is about to open with the beginning of the First World War. Now, I'm happy to say that Curie pivoted marvellously. Most of her researchers and her colleagues, they were drafted into the army to fight the war. She no longer could, could staff the institutes that she was attempting to set up. You know, she couldn't get the, get the people in to work in the laboratories that she oversaw. But nonetheless, she figured out a way to continue to use her pioneering scientific knowledge in order to help the war effort. As an expert on radioactivity and as a, as a colleague of Becquerel, who again had done pioneering research on, uh, on X-rays previously, Curie threw herself into the field of radiology and X-ray technology. And before the end of 1914, Curie had produced mobile radiography units known as Little Curies. There were 20 of these machines that were installed into vehicles and they could be driven around to, uh, to treat soldiers in the field and offer uh, you know, doctors greater information as to what was going on inside their patients' bodies. And these X-ray machines, as they, you know, as they were driven around and, and used in the treatment of wounded soldiers, they would have saved countless limbs of soldiers who otherwise would have had the, the, you know, they would have had their arms and legs amputated, but doctors could get a look at what was going on inside and actually prescribe a much more effective treatment to what, uh, to what these poor blokes were going through as the war was being fought. And it didn't stop there. It wasn't just the 20 that were being driven around because another 200 were built and installed in military hospitals. Again, all under the supervision of Marie Curie and all before the end of, uh, of 1914. When this woman wanted something done, it bloody well got done. I can tell you that. She didn't waste any time. And the effect that this effort would have had on recovering recuperating soldiers would have just been enormous. The access, the access to what was at the time cutting-edge technology to speed their recovery on the, field of, uh, on the field of battle would have just been huge. So Curie and her 17-year-old daughter Irene, they oversaw this whole process of installing the machines. And after this, Curie trained other women to use the machines. 
And this wasn't all she did for the French war effort either. I can tell you this outside of the laboratory, she was just as active. She bought war bonds with all of her Nobel Prize money. She attempted to donate the gold medals that she had received uh, to the French government, although they were refused. Um, And for doing all of this, for the X-ray machines, the training, the bonds, the medals, all of this happening, of course, in record time, for all of this from the French government, she received absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. The French government didn't offer her any recognition at all, at any point, not a scrap. Although this didn't seem to bother her, who, again, you won't be surprised to learn, she seemed to just like to do things for their own sake because she thought it was right. The the lack of adulation, award, or or whatever else, it, it really didn't seem to bother her too much because, again, she was just doing what she felt to be the right thing to do. I mean, in fairness, the, the French government did offer her a stipend for her scientific work from 1920 onwards, but that was about it. The stuff that she did during wartime was largely unnoticed. And, and, and this led to a funny situation uh, when she travelled across the Atlantic. She went on a tour of the United States in 1921. She met US President Warren G. Harding, who... Uh, Uh, presented her with a gram of radium and congratulated her warmly for her work with the substance and her pioneering pioneering work on radium and and, uh, and radioactivity. Uh, But the French government was uh, rather embarrassed by this encounter because she turned up for this meeting without any kind of official French civilian award to wear. She didn't have anything, you know, any sort of mark of civilian distinction that she could wear as she met the US president. And in order to try to, to counter this, the French government actually rushed through the offer of a legion of honour uh, to Marie Curie, uh, but she refused it. The stone cold killer that she was, she was like, no, nah, you didn't give it to me before. I don't want it now. I'm going to go and meet Harding with, with nothing, mate. I don't, I don't even care, right? She just turned up without it. I mentioned that she was welcomed warmly to the United States and and congratulated by the president there. And, and this was because, right, there's an interesting thing, a story behind this, right? All of her pioneering research uh, that was done with radium, right, she never patented it. She never sought to to any kind of intellectual protection of, or, or any sorry any kind of protection for the intellectual work that she did there for intellectual property. She never patented her, her discoveries or her research or anything else like that. She allowed the the learning that she had uncovered to be used freely by scientists everywhere, and it was in the United States that further pioneering research was being done by chemical companies and whatever else with radium as a cancer treatment there, and all of this was owed to her discovery of the element, of course. And it goes deeper than that, right? Because she didn't patent her discovery, because she didn't profit off of it, because she never became particularly wealthy as a result of her groundbreaking research, right? Chemical companies throughout the world, particularly in the United States, even military technology was uh, was being explored with, with radium there, right? And these companies that are doing it, they're profiting handsomely off this discovery, off the, off the, off the, ground, the, the groundwork that, uh, that, uh, that Curie had done. They're making vast fortunes and Curie's making nothing, right? Radium was so popular at the time in the 1920s, a gram of it cost $100,000, which was, I mean, in today's terms, about $1.5 million, right, in today's money. So the gift from Harding was a little $100,000 thank you. The gram of radium that it was, pure radium that was given to her in this ceremony, it was, uh, it was a little thank you to the woman who now couldn't afford to research her own discovery, given how expensive it had become after she didn't patent it. Goes to show, Curie was never interested in fame or fortune, in, in recognition or adulation. She was interested in her work, in scientific discovery, and in helping others. In fact, nothing kept her away from it. 
After returning from the United States, after being made a member of the League of Nations newly uh, newly formed International Committee on Intellectual Cooperation in 1922, after being elected to the International Atomic Weights Committee in 1930, after all of this and so much more, she's still plugged away with her research in a laboratory right through the 1920s in, in through to the 1930s. She couldn't be kept away from her work. Between her institutes in Paris and Warsaw, Curie spent the rest of her life working. She would reluctantly pause here or there to make a public appearance or travel around on tour for a bit, but on the most part, she was singularly devoted to her science. And this rubbed off on her eldest daughter, Irene, as well, who went on to also receive the Nobel Prize in chemistry in 1935 alongside her husband, Frédéric Joliot-Curie. Her other daughter, Eve, on the other hand, became, uh, became a writer, and she wrote a biography of her mother, which obviously became a bestseller after it was published. But tragically, Marie Curie didn't live to see her daughters do either of these things. She died just a few months after returning from her last ever visit to her beloved Poland on the 4th of July in 1934. Now, I mentioned a few times how unwell Curie was at so many points throughout her career. And, uh, and her death actually ran along the same lines. She died of aplastic anemia, which is a blood disorder. She died at the age of 66. And many of you may have already guessed that it's no coincidence that Curie's life was plagued with illness. You've probably already figured out why, and you've probably already figured out, figured out what very probably caused her death. Marie Curie spent her entire life researching radioactivity freely handling unstable elements that are extremely radioactive. And when she wasn't doing that, she was inventing X-ray machines that she helped to install, the training of which she oversaw with other women. She exposed herself to a lot of radiation throughout her life. She would carry around horrifically dangerous radioactive isotopes in her pockets. She'd leave them on her desk as she worked. She handled them freely in her lab. And on top of that, these X-ray machines from the First World War, she operated them without any protective equipment, without anything protective from, you know, prolonged exposure to harm. In other words, Marie Curie probably received more radiation across her entire lifetime than most other people would receive in a thousand years. And even though she died almost a century ago, that radiation hasn't diminished. Initially, Curie was buried in a, uh, in a cemetery alongside her husband, but her body was exhumed in 1995, so her remains could be entombed instead in the Paris Pantheon. And researchers examined her remains after they were exhumed, and they concluded that it was indeed the X-rays rather than the radium that had hastened her demise. But nonetheless, her remains were found to be so radioactive, even today, that they were sealed in lead before being entombed. And it goes further than this. All of her papers, her research materials, her documents, all of these other similar possessions that had been you know, near her while she'd been doing her life's work, all of them are so heavily contaminated with radioactivity that they are too dangerous to safely handle today. If you're a research student and you, want to, and you want to reference the original copies of Marie Curie's work, you have to wear specialised equipment to access her notes. Marie Curie lived an incredible life. She made discoveries that upended scientific understanding. She helped to usher in the atomic age with her pioneering, groundbreaking work. 
it is difficult to overstate the importance of her scientific legacy. She really is a truly towering figure in the history of science. But her achievements are all the more remarkable when viewed in context of being a woman at the end of the 20th century. Curie not only had to work tirelessly in the laboratory as any scientist would, she then had to tirelessly work to defend her discoveries from the countless detractors that sought to undermine her purely because she was a woman. Whether it was attributing her work to her husband or refusing her entrance into these illustrious scientific institutions or or just seeking to discredit her with, with personal slights, none of it worked. Marie Curie wasn't in it for fame and fortune, as we've said. She didn't care about money. She seemed not to care about anything other than the most basic recognition, a recognition of the truth that her work was her work. And in doing what she did, Curie helped to pave the way for future generations of women to make their mark on the world of science and also contributed to the long and slow process that humanity is still undergoing in realising that we've shut half of the best brains out of scientific progress. We're not finished. By no means are we finished, of course. But we wouldn't be anywhere near as far along, both scientifically and in the struggle for greater equality, were it not for the dedication, the perseverance, and the unadulterated brilliance of pioneers like Marie Sklodowska-Curie. But well, that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Maria Sklodowska-Curie. And I hope you enjoyed it. Always nice to get across a bit of scientific history on Half-Assed History, so I do hope uh, I do hope it did something for you. Um, as ever, the boring housekeeping announcements coming your way uh, to close out the show. Half-Assed contact form, links to subscribe, and of course a link to the Patreon, patreon.com slash half-assed if you want to support the show financially. Thank you so much to all the people who do. Great to have you along. If you want access to uncut episodes, behind-the-scenes stuff, show notes, whatever else, uh, and early access to the uh, two episodes, we'll get them before everyone else. Uh, patreon.com slash half house history you can go and sign up today uh, but that's it that's it if you've got uh, topic suggestions please get in touch again the contact form on the website there uh, but that's going to do it for this week so thanks so much for being part of the show as if we're going to leave you with a question posed on reddit here this one we've talked about the science uh, behind radioactivity here and this one a very a very good scientific question comes to us from Ertebola who says <clears throat> if bananas are radioactive which they are by the way if bananas are radioactive then why aren't there more chimpanzee superheroes?